0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. I'm going to start by reading from Ezekiel 16, and then we'll pray. Ezekiel chapter 16. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swatting clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was a time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. And your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, For it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for this time to gather in your church, with your church, and learn about your church, about the amazing work, uh, the amazing work that began on the cross, and and the story that is still being told uh, through time now. Lord God, we thank you for the great love story that is Christ and his church, and we pray you give us, uh, give us hearts and minds to look into it and to be dazzled for the next, uh, next few minutes here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you have a copy of the confession, you'll know we are on chapter 25 of the church. You could be forgiven for wondering what took so long for this to come up. I mean, the ma- marriage and the civil magistrate got a chapter before the church did, uh, but we're finally to it. So let me read from the first... uh, We're going to read the first two sections together. They kind of go together. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and other children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation." Now, confession here introduces one of the most confusing theological distinctions uh we have the visible and invisible church. And so if I came up to you this morning and asked you, well I'm gonna do it right now, what is the invisible church? Spiritual church. Spiritual church, all right. Elaborate. Mm-hmm. What's another word for the true children of God? Regenerate or elect. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, we, so the invisible church is, it is all those that God has chosen. It is the elect. When you hear the word invisible, it's easy to think that it's secret or mysterious. Um, and it, there is, there is a, a sense to which we cannot fully know it in this life, but it's certainly not secret to God. It's everyone he has chosen before even the world began, makes up the invisible church. I think a good way to think about it, So we see it referenced in Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriad of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So the membership in the invisible church is everyone that God has chosen throughout both time and space. It's all the elect that ever have been, that are alive now, and that will be uh, before Christ returns. As I, was, uh, as I was meditating on these chapters, I thought it's a good word, another good way to think of it is it is the complete church. And while it's and while we're still discuss, while we're still in the midst of it, still discuss, still learning from those who've gone before us and seeking out those to join us who've not come in yet, God sees us all, all throughout all of space and time. And so there's a, it's a wonderful thing to think about that. All right, so what is the visible church? Greg touched on it already. He talked about he talked about the makeup of the visible church is a little messier than of the invisible church. What's a good example of the visible church? It's kind of right in front of you right now. Local congregations. This, this, is, this is part of the visible church, what we're doing right here. This is the visible church best understood as a subset or a portion of the invisible church, which becomes visible when the elect come to Christ and then profess their faith and gather together. So Trinity Presbyterian Church is a local congregation of the visible church. Now, praise God, it's not the only one. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit, uh, but it is one of them. And we're going to talk about how we know that. We don't just say that because we put the word church out on the sign by the road. We're going to talk about what makes a church a church here in a minute. But before we do that, let's make sure the distinction is clear. So the invisible church is the church as God sees it. It's everyone who is his whereas the whereas the visible church it's manif- it's what we see or at least what we see partially and as greg mentioned it's not it's not a perf- it's not all the elect in here as jesus said the wheat and the tares will grow up together so it's made about all those who profess the true faith and the profession is very very important uh, but there are some we know that there are some who profess it because they're elect because they truly love jesus because they do they come where he has called them But then there are others who are hypocrites, who profess it without truly believing it. But both of those come together in the visible church. Imagine we got everyone who loved Jesus. So imagine in this moment, let's say we got a huge planning organization together, and we called together next week. Um, So next Lord's Day, we decide that everyone who loves Jesus in the world, who's alive right now, we're going to come together and worship him all together. And we got this massive conference together. You'd be... It would be it would be awesome. You'd be bumping into brothers and sisters from all over the world. Most of them they most of them you couldn't even speak to because they'd be speaking another language than you. And so you just have to you you look at them and smile. Maybe brandish your Bible or something like that. And uh, you'd know <laughs> I'm going to do that. We'll do the, we'll uh, we'll get to talk again in heaven when we'll know and recognize each other. But let's say we were able to actually do it. Let's say every Christian alive today could gather in one place. Now would that be Would that be the whole church? But what if we did it? What if we got every single Christian? Would that be the whole church? No, why not? Who's missing? Those who've gone on before us, that great cloud of witnesses. That's a part that our brothers and sisters, every bit as much as those are alive today. So as vast as the visible church is, it's still just a tiny little portion of the, of the full church, the full invisible church, that, we, that God knows perfectly now, and we've got all eternity to meet and get to know in the time to come. And that's what the first two sections here are talking about. We are finite beings and cannot perceive the church across time. This is one factor that contributes to its invisibility, what we mean when we say invisibility, from our perspective. It's not that God's hiding anything. It's that we can only, you know, we can only see a little bit of his plan and his people as it unfolds before us right now. That's one limitation. But also, there's also our, um, the true church, the visible church is also limited by sin. Sin darkens our own perception and sin but the purity of the but the purity of the church is also compromised by those who profess faith uh, without meaning it so sin still taints the visible church today and so we cannot fully know it there are there are many there are many there are many who have been here in this room uh, there are many that there are many that your elders tremble are here today that profess faith but do not believe it it's why that's why the sermons come with such unction and such power that's why we, you know, that's why we press on personal devotion. that's why we press on, you know, being with the church, because we don't want anyone to think that, "Well, I came, there, I came to church a few times, so I'm good." We don't want any, we don't want to grow weeds or tares in this little wheat field that we're responsible for. We would like the goal of every good elder and shepherd is to make sure that all the members of his own visible church are truly members of the invisible to come. as much as depends on us. Let's look at at section three. Is that distinction clear? Have you ever been confused by the visible-invisible distinction before? No? All right. Sharp bunch this morning. Unto this Catholic, visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual, Thereunto. So now, for the remaining chapters, the confession is going to look look exclusively at the visible church, the invisible church. It is what it is. It's God's responsibility. And while we take great comfort great comfort in knowing it is there, our concern is primarily for what He's given us here, and the church, particularly the churches that we belong to. Now let's say. Now let's say you're on vacation, uh, coming up soon. Um, I know it's odd to say at the end of the summer, but I usually vacation in the fall, so that's where my mind goes. You're planning your vacation, and you're you're looking for a place to go to church, because you're going to be on vacation over a Sunday, right? You all pick churches when you go on vacation, right? Okay, good. You should be. How do you find a good one? What do you look for? This is a real question. What do you look for when you look for a church that's not your own to worship at? Denomination. So it's got to say Presbyterian or you won't go to it? Okay. All right. All right. So denominational affiliation, doctrinal standards, those are some criteria. What else? Past history. All right. What else? Mm-hmm. No, no one here but you looks it up in the phone book. However you to All right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, you come up and you go you're going to okay. there's be all sorts of crazy kind of churches in this Hmm. Uh-huh. Or you're gonna try go some church which is feel very strange. Yeah, it might. It's very true. anyway, that's the decision we Mm-hmm. Decision is to where you do you stay in your hotel room where it's familiar, or do you risk going to a church that might feel really strange? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's and that's actually a really good point. I mean, if you visit this this church is home, you know, this is homey this is familiar. We know people here. We have an idea what to expect. We feel welcome. We feel like we belong. Go to other church, everything's different. You got to meet new you got meet strangers. <laughs> Very hard for introverts like me. Um, the order of worship's not going to go exactly the same. There's going to be all the, the preacher the preacher may only preach for <gasps> 10 minutes and then he's done. That would be awful. There's going to be all kinds of incident there's going to be all kinds of incidental sources of awkwardness when you visit. But the question at the end of the day is, Is that mean it's a bad church? No, not necessarily. Some of that could just be your emotional response to an unfamiliar environment. So whether you're, whether you're on the internet and you're reading the history of the church, or looking for a denominational affiliation, or a doctrinal statement, or going on there, I mean, I hope you'll go on there and at least preview a sermon or two if, the past, you know, if they're posting it online, listen to the preaching of the word. So whether you're in advance or you're sitting there in the pew, how do you, how do you decide whether it's a true church? How, what do you tell your kids afterwards? Do you just shrug and say, well, that was different. Let's never do that again. Um, do you set yourself, do you set your own emotions and feelings up as the standard? No. Now, why do I do all this? I mean, there is a practical consideration. You should be—you you should never take a break from the worship of the Lord. And so, if the Lord calls you away from your home church, you should be looking for another good one to go to. Now, some of us have come here—you know—some of us have come here more or less, you know, more or less recently from other churches as well. We made a decision that—that uh, that the Lord wants us here. And there's criteria. There were criteria that we brought into play, or should have been. This is where, uh, where Reformed Christians have talked about the marks of the church, the marks of what makes a true church and distinguishes it from the others. The Confession is going to touch on these, is going to kind of assume these. It's going to talk about these in a high level. Some other Reformed prof- Confessions of the same time were a little more clear in that. We're going to look at it a little bit. But here's a quick summary. So what are the marks of the true church? Let me make the question a little more pointed. Does anybody know? There are three. Administration of the sacraments. That's right. Faithful. Sorry, faithful preaching. faithful preaching. That's right, church and church discipline. Let's talk. So let's talk about the preaching of the word first. Romans chapter ten says, "How then will they call in him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach uh, unless they are sent?" Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed a report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And I love this passage that Paul writes because it not only speaks of his own preaching ministry, but, talk, but references Isaiah hundreds of years earlier and his preaching ministry. Isaiah had one of the most frustrating uh, because he was sent to pe- you know, he was one of the most eloquent preachers the church has ever seen, and he was, and very few people listened to him when he should have. But it also makes the point that the preaching, the speaking, not only the written word, but it's the spoken word, has been a part of the church since it was founded. Paul Paul writes in First Corinthians: For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we p- preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God that's one of the signs of faithful preaching it never quite lines up with where where we think it should when we come in the word of God always rubs us always rubs us in in awkward ways if we come into the church expecting to have you know No matter how faithful we think we are when we walked in, no matter how how close to the Lord's walk uh, we thought we were falling when we walked in, the faithful preaching of the word is going to push us. It's going to convict us and show us where we've fallen short time and time again. That's what the the faithful word does. So how do you know the pastor is preaching the word? I mean, this this is a whole series of Sunday School lessons on preaching. But I'm going to say something very simple this morning. <laughs> is he preaching from his Bible? This is a, you know, it's a very simple thing to see. When your pastor, when your pastor climbs on the pulpit, he's got a Bible with him, and he's got whole, whole scripture passages in, uh, in his notes. Uh, the Bible's everywhere in what he does. Have you ever been in a church where the pastor, he gets up, and he op- flips over the Bible, and he reads half a verse, closes the Bible, and that's the last time you see it ever again yeah we've all seen that, haven't we? This is not to you know and this is not to say you're expositing long passages every time. sometimes your pastor will get up and read one verse very simple and then spend the rest of the time pulling out you know reams upon reams of truth from that single passage. It's not like there's a requirement that we get through a whole chap yeah we <laughs> we definitely don't get through whole chapters every Sunday here. That is an unreasonable expectation, but it is all based on the word, and a great way to start is by just looking at. You know, is the pastor using the Bible? And you know, another way that you know if the pastor is using the Bible is if you have your Bible open in front of you. This is this is a basic bonehead Christianity this morning. Do you have a Bible open your laps? As a matter of fact, I'd like to challenge. As a matter of fact, I'd like to go off on a tangent here and challenge you, if, because I've been convicted of this recently that you should have a re- a physical Bible on your lap. If you pull out your phone, if you pull out a tablet, of which I'm guilty. Um, you know, you will, have, you will have, you'll have lots of distractions potentially popping up. You can squash some of those by silencing notifications and turning on vibrate and all that. Uh, but there still will be the tendency like, oh, let's see if an emails come in. You know, let's, let's, check, my, let's check Twitter. Um, you know, let's see, you know, let me, let me jot down a note. And as you switch over to your notes app, then you'll pull up the notes from your to-do list for the week ahead. And now your mind, even if it's just for a second, your mind is not there. I'm going to press a little further. Now, many people take notes on a sermon. Note-taking is a wonderful discipline, wonderful discipline and helpful practice. But be careful how you approach the preaching of the Word. It's different than what I'm doing right now. This is Sunday school, so you should definitely be taking copious notes right now. This is good stuff, y'all. So make sure you're getting this down. But think about, when you think about preaching, think about it differently. Think for a minute that you know. Imagine for a moment that Jesus walked in this morning and he he stood up at the pulpit and preached to you, that he did like he did in the synagogues of old. He pick, took a portion of the law, read it, and then expounded upon it. Would you be taking notes at that moment? No. Now the correct answer is no. Shake your head. No. You'd be sitting there in awe and wonder, and you'd just be soaking in every syllable that he uttered at that time. You wouldn't need notes. So now think about that. So now think about your own note-taking practice. I'm not telling anyone don't take notes during a sermon. There are things that will be said that you'll need to remember. Whether you have to, you know, whether you have to write in your cuff sleeve or inscribe on in your, eye, you know, eyelids, whatever. But think about how you take notes. Because if you're talking to, some, if you're listening to someone you love, you're not taking, You're usually not taking copious notes while you're doing it. You're listening and bringing it in. So think about and particularly think particularly if your note-taking requires you to be looking at a screen, using writing furiously with a pen, you're gonna be so captivated on trying to get every point that you may miss the very you know, you may miss the overall thrust and the theme that you really need to that you really need to work with. Or you may be so busy writing down the first point that that you missed that you missed the third point that you really needed to hear. So remember that preaching is different. It is not a lecture, it is not a lesson, it's not even a Bible study. It is the word made alive for a few brief moments in the week, where Jesus preaches through His servant. He put and He takes His word and He lodges it right into your hearts. So, particularly, I'm particularly talking to you, those of you who were, you know struggle to stay awake or to pay attention. If you don't have your your hand furiously, don't stop it, but think about why do I need this? What am I getting? You know, what? Why do I need this? Do I need to love the, word, the Lord and his word more deeply than I have? Something to think about this morning. All right, number two, the administration of the sacraments. How many sacraments are there? Again, real basic stuff. How many? Two. Greg, you held up three. It looked like three fingers. It was three. How many sacraments? Okay, now I'm really confused. There's uh, one you kind of left out there. No? (laughs) Baptism? Yeah. We have only, so prayer is important. It's not a sacrament. What? Means of grace. grace. The sacraments are parts of the means of grace, but yeah. All right. All right. For the benefit of Greg, there are two sacraments, and we see them in Matthew 28. When Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we hear the other one at least once a month from First Corinthians 11. What we know is the, uh, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes simply put a sacrament is a divinely ordained ritual is a practice that the lord has commanded for a specific purpose we see in Matthew 28 and 1 Corinthians 11 an imperative, do this, remember this, do this so you can remember this. We get the details in other passages about, you know, what baptism is, you know, the application of water upon the body. We see, you know, we learn, you know, uh, we see Christ institute in the Gospels, the Lord's Supper, uh, when he celebrates the very last Passover and the very first communion with his disciples the first time. And we see the command that he makes that we are to, that we are to keep doing this. He's speaking not just to the apostles there, but he's speaking to the church, to the New Testament church that they're going to go out and found. And he establishes these he establishes these practices for all time. So there are two. And so a good way to know whether a church is practice, administering the sacraments sacraments properly is if they're only doing two is a good place to start. How many church how many sacraments does Rome have? Does anybody know? Seven. Does anybody know what they are? I had to look this up. Bonus points if you don't know the answer to this question. (laughs) Lent is not one of them. Marriage is one. Yep. And who in the world knows what unction is? Now, now you're talking about two. Holy Orders. Holy Orders is actually a, a separate one. Yeah, Unction or Last Rites is another. <laughs> yep. Yep, well done. Well done. You bungled that beautifully. <laughs> it's, uh, so, Confirmation. Confirmation is, as I can tell, kind of like Baptism. Um, because apparently Christ's sign wasn't good enough, so we had to add another one. Confession anointing of the sick, sink or unction, matrimony, holy orders. And then, of course, they include baptism. And that's interesting because that's the only one that's actually really similar to, to our sacrament because they don't even call the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper. They call it the Eucharist or the Mass. If, you're ever, if you ever get drugged to a, you know, like a Catholic wedding or a funeral or something like that, you know, the family ties, you have to go. You've got to listen to it don't uh, you know I, I hope you know this already don't don't take what look, looks kind of like the lord's supper when it's served because it's not uh, does anyone know what the roman catholics believe happens in the mass the re-sacrifice, of resacrifice of christ yes that's a good way to put it yeah bob Well, they also have a trans this big transfiguration transubstantiation yeah right, 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 right. yep yep good all right. badly done <laughs> yeah the most yeah I had to I had to uh, I was on a film crew for a Catholic wedding once that was an enlightening experience um, what What I love about Catholic services is they look really fancy right up until that priest who's been waving his hands and you know making hand motions and swinging, swinging stuff around all of a sudden he has to preach a homily for a few minutes and then it literally sounds like that pastor of the princess bride marriage marriage is what we, you know <laughs> He gets up there with this squeaky, effeminate voice and makes this absolutely pathetic attempt at a sermon for about 15 minutes. And it's like, ah, yeah, there's no power here. But what's really interesting is they serve mass, uh, what looks sort of like the Lord's Supper. And when he's done, he takes all the leftovers and he puts them in a cup and he stirs around some water and drinks it. By the way, your elders don't do that. We, We put it all around the sink when we're done. Which would horrify the Catholics because... Like what Bob just said, they believe that's Christ's body all over again. They believe they just—they believe the crucifixion just happened right there before your eyes again. So you don't dare just pour that down, pour that down the drain. That is not what the Lord's Supper is, and that's not—and that is—and that is one of the biggest areas of distinction between us between the marks of a true church and the marks of a church that has fallen away. Because actually, Bob indicated very well. That's an amazing thing, and it's something that the priest is right at the center of. So beware when a church takes what belongs to Christ and takes it unto themselves to try to do, not to mediate um, and—excuse me, let me use the words carefully here. Be careful when a church no longer stewards the mysteries of God, but offers them directly in their own authority. That's the big lesson takeaway from this. Greg, I see your hand up. Do you have a question? Faithful practice of discipline. And this is, the, this, is the controver- this is the really controversial one. I'll read two passages here from Ephesians 5 and Hebrews 13. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 18, says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart and through the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The goal of the church, remember the goal of the church is to draw out the members of the invisible church visibly which means the pursuit of holiness is what is one of the great concerns of the visible church. Discipline produces holiness. And when we hear the word discipline, we shiver because we're modern Americans. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to think that anyone has the authority to do it. So we hear it in a very negative connotation. And that's partially that's appropriate. Discipline is negative. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Do this instead. There are those imperatives, the rebukes, the confrontation that have to happen. But discipline is also positive. That's one of the other reasons for the preaching of the word. That's one of the other reasons for bowing our knees in prayer and praying. These are, uh, that's, that's one of the reasons that you should hang around afterwards and talk about the sermon with everyone here. There's also, discipline is also positive. It's giving you what you need, uh, what you thirst for, what you hunger for, what your body, what your mind, what your family, what your children need that week. Discipline imparts that to you. And then when you stray from it, there's correction there as well. So again, you're in that vaca- you're in your vacation church, and you're look. How do you look for discipline? I mean, does that mean you ha- does that mean the pastor has to get up and excommunicate somebody that Sunday? or You won't know if they practice discipline. I, I really hope they don't do that do it that often. Um, no, it's more than that. You know, that would certainly be one one aspect of it. But really, one of the best ways to see discipline is to see, do people love each other? Do people love each other in the church? Because dis- discipline is loving when it's, uh, when it's rightfully practiced, and it produces love in people as well. I think one of the saddest things I've seen, even more sad than this, and, you know, I think one of the saddest things I've seen in churches is churches 10, 20 times the size of this that clear out Ten times as fast, you know, as soon as the benediction's spoken. People hustle out the back door. There's a lot of re- there's there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, yeah, Applebee's, you gotta get there. Um, but you know, it also means where are the elders and deacons in that church? I mean, those elders and deacons, you know, the pastor should be standing by the door, and if somebody wants to rush out, he should be grabbing their hand and saying, brother, it's good to see you. And then ask about something in their lives. And then everybody has to back up. You know, everybody has to back up behind them waiting for the pastor to clear the door. You know, you think we don't know what we're doing. (laughs) You know, where are the elders going around talking to people and find out what they're struggling with? Granted, that's not the only thing that keeps people in a building, but it's it's one of the things it does. One of, the, um, one of the other confessions of the church that the, that the Westminster Confession drew from was the Belgic Confession. And Article 29 is really is much longer than what we're reading today, but it has some very uh, it has a helpful summary of what we've been looking at. Article 29 of the Belgic Confession is called The Marks of the True Church and Wherein She Differs from the False. We believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern the Word of God, which is the true discern from the Word of God. Which is the true church, since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of the church? Hmm, very practical. Everyone calls themselves a church. How do we know whether they earn it? But we speak here not of hypocrites who are mixed in with the church with the good, yet are not of the church, though externally in it. But we say that the body and communion of the true church must be distinguished from all sects who call themselves church. the church. The marks by which the true church is known are these if the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin. In short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary hereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known from which no man has a right to separate separate himself." I'm going to skip a paragraph and go down because I think their conclusion is really helpful. So that's the marks of the true church. And then they say, As for the false church, she ascribes more power and authority to herself and her ordinances than to the word of God, and will not submit herself to the yoke of Christ. Neither does she administer the sacraments as appointed by Christ in his word, but adds to and takes from them as she thinks proper. She relieth more upon men than upon Christ, and persecutes those who live holy according to the word of God, and rebuke her for her errors, covetousness, and idolatry. These two churches are easily known and distinct from each other. That is a very confident state, statement. The difference between the two are easily known. But and notice, so I almost think that along with the marks of the true church, we should study these marks of the false church as well, because there is great warning and instruction in here. The false church ascribes more power and authority to herself and her ordinances than to the word of God. Does the pastor, is the pastor sheepish about some of the verses he's read? Does he apologize for heteronormal language in what, you know, in in what the word says? Is he uncomfortable by, I was actually in a a work meeting a couple weeks ago, and somebody was really nervous about all the masculine pronouns we were using to refer to God. And uh, thankfully, a member of leadership has said, "Well, that's what the Bible uses." Um, you know, so is you know, are they are they are they smushing out uh, are they smushing out uh, gendered pronouns? If they do, then they're saying we know better than God than the uh, than the uh, out of touch God who wrote this book. If she administers sacraments that are not appointed by Christ but adds to and takes from them as she thinks proper she relies more upon men than upon Christ and then finally does she persecute those who are seeking to live holy lives these are things to think about when you're looking for a church on vacation when you're in a church in a church on vacation you're thinking about what are we going to talk about with my kids on the way home because my kids are going to be confused they're going to be wondering this is really weird and some of that is going to be right you're going to have to point out yeah kids that was weird because that was wrong and here's why and the other thought says, "No, that was just different," and you need to and you need to glory in the fact that there's faithful believers uh, living here, you know, w- living and worshiping here, a little bit different, but loving the same Jesus we do. Bob, you had your hand up. Uh, point of clarification, yeah. We're seeking to live holy lives. Hmm. I think you, I think, well, let me speak to that last point. So you talk about daddy needing to step up and show where the church is wrong after. I think you need to be very careful with that, even on vacation. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there is a tendency in all fathers to be little, to be little popes, to be little priests, and to think they're the only ones that their family needs. I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge subculture. This is where I always get, this is, this is why this teaching is so important, because we will always set ourselves up as the authority. And so it's very, so we've just seen the church, one of the marks of a false church is a church who takes more authority unto itself, unto herself, than God has given her. But we can do the same in the family. So even when we're visiting a church that's new and different, we need to say, you know, one of the reasons we need to remind our children and point out the discomfort and the awkwardness is to recognize that that's good. It's good for us to be pushed and to, you know, see things differently. Um, Because we, you know, our familiarity, and our comfort is not the ultimate standard when we're in the pew. Honestly, if I wanted to be comfortable, I would not be here on Sunday morning. Because I already know, there's something, I've already been convicted preparing this lesson, and Andrew hadn't even got to preach yet. And, you know, I, something's going to come. So we do not want our children to be, you know, that we do not want what is familiar and safe to be what is right. So we need to be careful with that. For those, and that's true for, and so for those who persecute holy lives, I would be, looking, be careful for churches that are going to affirm everyone in their midst, affirm their choices, affirm their struggles, tell them that they're okay, everything's okay. Because those who live holy lives will want their sins brought out. So I would say look for a church that is willing to preach on sin as well as grace, because God's people need to hear about, hear about both. And be careful for a church that's going to dismiss conviction of sin and say, you need to stop feeling so bad about yourself. You need to, you know, you need to, we need to, we need to, we need to to confess our sins and trust in God's grace. And we need to do both because God's grace is cheap if we don't, if we don't understand our sin and our sins and our sins lead us to despair if we don't grasp God's grace. So I think both of those have to be held. All right, five minutes. I think we'll make it. Section 5 says, The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so generated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. I like Romans 11 here. There's a lot going on in Romans 11, but it references one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Paul writes, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleased with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Paul in Romans 11, he is wrestling with the falling away of many of the children of Israel. Christ has come, and many of the Jews have not, not seen him for who he is. And so he is burdened by this. And many of his and many of the many of his fellow Israelites who believed in Christ were burdened as well, and so he's trying to wrestle through with what does this mean? And he like and he like Elijah in First Kings nineteen says, "Lord, this is it. I've preached faithfully. I've been persecuted. There's no one left." He's tempted to that same despair, and God's command you know and God's reassurance comes to him. I have kept for myself those who have not bowed the knee. There will always be the there will always be the pressure to bow the knee to Baal, bow the knee to whatever deities have in his moment in the world at that time. The church will always be up, will always be in opposition to that. It will always be swimming upstream against a current, an uncomfortable current, to bow down, to conform, to go along. And yet, and yet that glorious statement at the end, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. There will not just be individual Christian, there's a Christian over there, there's a Christian over there, there's one over there, no, there will always be not only that, not only Christians who persevere, as we looked at in the chapter seventeen, but there will be Christians together who are who are being preserved. Faithful, you know, faithful, faithful churches will always be there. They'll sometimes they'll be hard to find. Sometimes throughout history they have been hard to find, but they will always be there. The Lord will never be without a witness in the world. So you might think about the you might. You might think about um, Section 4 and 5. I missed Section 4, actually. Let me go back to Section 4 real quick. The Catholic Church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular, churches which are members thereof are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced. Ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. I skipped over this one because we actually talked about a lot of these points already. It's here that they t- the confession references and touches on those marks of true church that we talked about. And they po- and you can think about this by saying the, tr- the visible church is never completely pure. We don't look for per- personal perfection in this life. We don't expect perfect churches either. And yet, chapter 5, and then yet, section 5 reminds us that even in, an impure church a, pure, a church that is mixed with saints and sinners in the pews together—that's, you know, that's held back by the sins of, of officers and members alike—can nevertheless be a true church. And this again takes us back to that invisible-visible distinction. The invisible church is perfect because it's based upon God's choice; those that are chosen. Whereas the visible church—the visible church—is is, is faithfulness determined by its profession. What does it profess and proclaim to its members and to the world outside? That's how we will know it's faithful. Uh, I was reading G. I. Williamson's commentary on the, on the confession in preparation for this. He has it's very helpful. He said, he said, let's you know, could we ever imagine for a minute that you had a church of such polished, you know, such polished and accomplished hypocrites that they seemed to do everything right? They seem to preach the word of God. They seem to, uh, or they seem to administer the sacraments perfectly. They even seems to be church discipline, and yet they're all faking it. The whole room on Sunday morning is just faking it and going through the motions. He said, he said could that ever be? And he said, no, it couldn't. Yes, it, when, the tr- when the church is faithful, you will have hypocrites in her midst. You will have those who are just pretending. But you will never have everyone pretending in the same time. Because where the true profession is, there the true believers will gather to hear God's word preached, to hear, to receive the sacraments, and, to, and come under the discipline. And so that is a glorious thing. When you find the marks of a true church, you will know you will find true Christians in its midst. That is a glorious promise of God. And then we're here at the last, uh, we're here at section six. I'll just say this real quick. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. And this is the this is the revised version. the uh, The original version here is about twice as long, and it goes on to call the Pope of Rome the Antichrist, that the, that man of sin, and a whole bunch of other uh, biblical name calling going on, which was way overboard, uh, went too far, but was completely understandable given the context of what they were writing. That was the great enemy. That what they were that they were warning their flock against the great enemy they were facing that time um, it'd be tempting to uh, that's an interesting study um, the you know the changes made to the confession that came out teaches an important truth this is not this is not new revelation hand down on high this is faithful pastors and elders trying to um, trying to understand apply the word to every generation as it comes so it does change last thing I'm going to read last thing I'm going to read is from a, a um, children's adaptation of Pilgrim's Progress, because I pull Pilgrim's Progress into all my Sunday school lessons. And it's on the second part, it's at the end of the second part of Christiana's story, which as I've loved to mention is about the church. And Mercy, one of the, uh, one of the travelers with Christiana in the second part of the journey, she, she says in this adaptation, we were so few when we started. And now we are quite a large company some young and some old some weak and some strong and yet the king has cared for us all and that is a nutshell is what the church is it is those the lord has brought together from all walks of life from all tribes and tongues and nations of the world and he has cared for us all amen amen let's pray lord god it is good to be home this morning Lord God, it is good to be here. It's good to be here with family, and it is good to be. And Lord, I thank you that we are in a place like no other, a place that there cannot, whose equal cannot be found on this earth, for we are in a body uh, that you have formed, redeemed, and made special for yourself. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us into this fellowship this morning. Lord, whatever struggles we brought in, it is good and right for us to be here. Heavenly Father, I pray for those in our midst going through the motions who are here because mom and dad uh, told them to, who are here because they, they felt like their friends would think ill of them if they didn't, who are here and not sure why they're here. Lord, I pray, speak to, the, speak to those men and women here today, particularly with your word. Lord, come and through your word preached, draw your elect into your church. Lord, use this visible church to, build, uh, to bring every last member that you have chosen into your invisible church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.